Hello and welcome to the Unsweetened 2021 podcast, episode three. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands of UNSW, the Gadigal and Bedigal people of the Eora Nation and the Nunawa people. I would like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any Aboriginal Torres Strait people joining us today. This is, was and always will be Aboriginal land. So we have a very exciting episode to share with you all today. We will be discussing some of the amazing events that the publication has been involved in over the past weeks share an interview with esteemed author and UNSW senior lecturer Stephanie Bishop, explore the literary movement of romanticism and the sublime, and retell the myth of Ariadne's thread. My name is Belle Campbell, and today I am joined by my fellow editor, Eleanor Kaloudis. Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here. So how are you finding working on this year's Unsweetened publication? I am finding it really enjoyable and just a great opportunity. I'm learning so much. Um, I knew I would, (laughs) but Mm. I think it's just a lot more rich in detail than I thought it would be. And um, yeah, I'm just really enjoying it so far. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you're studying, what are you studying at UNSW? So I'm doing a major in English and minor in creative writing, um, which kind of fits in with what we're doing here in Unsweetened. So, yeah, it kind of, it all melds together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what subjects are you taking, if any, this trimester? Oh, this trimester I'm doing um, Australian literature and, oh, cool. yeah, and um, a creative writing project, which I am both very excited about. Is the creative writing project with Rowanna? Uh, I'm not sure yet. It hasn't come up on Moodle, so I don't okay. know who I have, but I think it might be with Rowena. Yeah, I, I think I took that one last year. It's it's really good opportunity to kind of sink your teeth into like a longer piece of writing. Mm. Yeah, it's, I'm really uh, excited about one. it. Awesome. So as a literary publication, I am obliged to ask you, you know, have, what have you been reading recently? Cool. Okay. So I um, the last like the few weeks I've been reading. So I finished reading um, the Amityville Horror, which I did not know was a book until I found it in a secondhand bookstore. Oh, I didn't know and, it was a book either. <laughs> yeah. Um, and reading it is kind of like the, the equivalent of watching a really B grade horror movie and it yeah, turning right. into a comedy. That's kind of what it was. So it was entertaining, but not for the reasons you'd think it would be. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> so that was that. Um, and then I read, I just recently finished reading Slaughterhouse-Five mm. um, by Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, I didn't really know much about it. I kind of stumbled upon the book um, and just dove right into it, and it wasn't at all what I was expecting. It's a very wild ride, but um, I love his writing, and it was just very interesting. Yeah, I feel like reading uh, like literary fiction classics is kind of like that. Like there's a lot of, um, I guess, uh, information 
about the book, but it, you kind of seem to like pass through it. And then when you actually get into it, it's somehow not what you expected at all. Yeah, yeah. I think I'd always heard of Slaughterhouse mm. Five, but I didn't really know much about the plot. Um, and then, uh, so a customer accidentally left their copy at my work. Um, oh. I work in retail, and so I left it at the counter for a few days in case they came back for it, and then they never did. So I just kind of claimed it and read oh my it. God. It's like and fate. Yeah, and it just came out of nowhere, and it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, funny how books kind of come into your life like that when you mm. least expect it. When you go hunting for a good book, you won't find one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, definitely know that feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What have you been reading? So I recently finished uh, Death in Her Hands by Atessa Moshveg, I believe that's how you pronounce her last name, but um, I hope so, which she is the author of My Year of Rest and Relaxation, mm, um, which yeah. was really popular last year. Yeah, I heard which, of that one. Yeah, I read and I did really enjoy. Um, so I kind of saw, I think, this book earlier in the year. I was really excited to buy it. I finally got around to reading it. And it was, like, good. Um, it wasn't as good. I didn't enjoy it as much as my year of rest and relaxation. Um, but I think that's because they're very different stories. Mm. So this story kind of centers around a recently widowed uh, older woman who's moved from, like, a more suburban area to a really remote kind of cabin in the woods vibe with a very (laughs) small town and she stumbles upon this uh note that talks about a dead body and she gets drawn into this murder mystery because there's no actual dead body so she's very drawn into fantasizing and creating possible scenarios about who this dead person could be what her life was like who killed her and she kind of spirals into um those kind of uh, conjectures, but it's not a murder mystery. It is and it isn't. Um, So I read it pretty quickly. It's not a long book. Um, And it was certainly interesting, but, um, yeah, I didn't didn't quite live up to my expectations, unfortunately. But I suppose that's what happens when you read a book that you really love and then – you go into another book by the same author and that doesn't quite meet your expectations. Yeah, it is always, I, I understand that, it is always a little bit disappointing when, like, you you find this one book and it's just so fantastic in every sense and then you expect the rest of them to be that way, but it's like, I guess the authors are human. <laughs> They're yeah. bound to, to um, stuff up every now and then. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And there's always, you know, that pressure when you write a really good book and then you've got your editor and your agent pressing you to write another and you don't want to write something that's too similar because then you'll be criticised for not having, you know, um, versatility, yeah, Mm -hmm. range. Um, But then if you write something too different, you'll lose your audience. It's a a tough Yeah, it's a tough gig. Yeah. But it sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah, it, it was it was good. I'm also reading uh, The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole for uh, the Gothic Cultures course, which I'm taking this trimester. It's one of the first readings we have to do. 
Um, and I, I love a bit of gothic horror. It's great. <laughs> so do I. I'm actually really excited to take that class um, most likely next year. How are you? Are you liking it? Well, uh, it's the first reading we're doing because I know later on we'll get into some more gothic-y stuff, mm. Dracula, all that. Um, but it's certainly, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's um, really early work of gothic fiction. I think it's the 17, it was written in the 1700s. Mm. Um, so, you know, the very old vernacular, you know, yeah. see, die, doth. But I, <laughs> I mean, I'm a big Shakespeare fan, so that kind of doesn't phase me so much. Um, it's just, I love how in older pieces of literature, like the plot is like, just it's like a spiky graph like it's just all over the place like they have to keep the audience on their seat like the ent- for the entire journey of the plot that you like <laughs> they don't rest <laughs> the characters are always going through something and I just find it funny they don't they don't get to rest no that sounds so interesting I also am a, like uh, love a bit of gothic horror so sounds yeah. good yeah, I definitely recommend if anybody's interested in taking that course. So, um, Eleanor, you've not only been doing editorial workshopping um, and reading submissions, but you've also been tirelessly providing us with some really fantastic weekly writing prompts. Can you tell us a bit about your process for coming up with these prompts? It is a chaotic process, I will tell you that. Um, so I kind of I have a reminder in my phone for every second Saturday because I do share the responsibility with one of our other lovely editors Mia um so we kind of interchange every week and um it's hard to explain I guess I kind of just I try to go a bit outside the box um thinking about what would make an interesting story what would kind of get the the creativity flowing um different ways of writing um, but for one week I did um, a sound so like just writing um, about sound and even just like quotes images anything that can kind of spark the imagination really kind mm. of get people writing do you find weekly writing prompts helpful in your own creative practice Yeah, I really do. I think that uh, it is quite easy, especially with study and just life in general. It can get really uh, bogged down and busy and that can kind of stunt the creative flow. And then that's how a lot of people get into writer's block. Uh, Mm. So I think there have been so many moments in my own life where I didn't know what to write or I hadn't been writing for a while and then someone would just say one word or talk about a specific concept and it was like a light bulb moment. Yeah, so that's kind of like what the prompts are about. It's really interesting the way that certain phrases and words and images really strike you and others can just pass right over your head. Mm. um, I I don't envy your job of trying to find things that are almost universally inspirational because (laughs) I feel like we're all such different creatures, especially creatively, that the things that inspire some of us really don't resonate with others so Mm. yeah yeah I completely agree I think when writing the prompts uh, you have to just accept that not everyone is going to find inspiration from that Mm. prompt um but you got to just kind of throw it out there and (laughs) hope for the best yeah well on on the topic of writing prompts the 
uh, Unsweetened has recently collaborated with its sibling publication, Thoranka, to organize a 10-day writing challenge. So I think that started on the 20th of May and will finish on the 29th. So it will probably be over by the time this episode comes out. But Eleanor, did you have the opportunity to participate in this challenge at all? Yeah, I did. Um, There were a few days that I really wanted to participate, but life again got in the way. Like yesterday, the prompt was gothic horror. (laughs) Yeah, I I saw that one and got all excited about it. But obviously, um, when it came around to doing it, I didn't get a chance. Uh, But... So I chose uh, day four which was you're given the choice to choose your afterlife. Wow. Um, Yeah, I thought that one was really out there and I really loved the concept of it. And so many great comments um, that people put in. And uh, when I started writing mine, I, with my own writing, I tend to always start off with something and then it always gets gets into a little dark kind of alley (laughs) Uh, so I was writing it and I was like oh this is coming out a bit too dark but (laughs) I posted it anyway um yeah that's why I really loved about the prompts um for Saranka and the ones that they've come up with a lot of them are very much my kind cup of tea so (laughs) I'm hoping that everyone else has had as much fun with it uh, as I have Yeah, I had the opportunity this morning actually to look through some of those prompts and they're very definitely intriguing. I really loved uh, today's prompt actually, which is day nine, which was a place you wished existed, uh, which immediately made me think about all of the places in fiction that I've read about that I've just sat there thinking, oh, I wish that was real. I wish I could just be there. Is there any place that you think of in fiction that you would love to be real so I also saw this prompt and when I saw it uh, it took me a minute to kind of register and I realized a lot of the books that I read that have um, like these fictitious places are horror oh yeah (laughs) I really would not want those places (laughs) to exist like I don't want a real Overlook Hotel or Dairy Maine Stephen King can keep those in his, yeah. um, in his mind and in fiction. I don't want them to exist. But um, if I had to choose, I think I would go for um, good old Hogwarts because, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. can't go wrong with a old castle magic school. So Absolutely. Yeah. What about you? Well, I think the place that I would love to be real is the – Cemetery of Forgotten Books, which is from the Cemetery of Forgotten Books series uh, by Carlos Ruiz Zafon, um, which is, if anybody's unfamiliar with the series, it's fantastic. I highly recommend you check it out. But one of the places, uh, central places in the series is this underground library underneath a cemetery, which is, uh, I hope I'm not spoiling, <laughs> um, which is <laughs> Uh, kind of meant for all of the forgotten books which have just kind of been lost to history to go and rest. And uh, certain people who are let in on this uh, city's secret are allowed to venture in and allow themselves to find a book and become that book's guardian and ensure that it is protected and it's not, it doesn't vanish completely. 
And I just absolutely love the idea of like being the guardian or protector of a book and this idea of books disappearing and their stories being erased is really quite a powerful one that speaks to, I think, this fundamental human uh, desire not to be forgotten. And I think it's such a beautiful idea, as well as the fact that, you know, an underground library underneath a cemetery is very enticing and mysterious and evocative. But the whole concept as well is um, something that I really wish was real. (laughs) Yeah, it's just hearing you talk about it really makes me want to read the series. It sounds so cool. Yeah, I can't recommend it enough. The the writing style is beautiful as well. It's, um, yeah, highly recommend the series. And it's one of those series where there's four books, but you don't have to read them in order Mm. because they all kind of have separate stories that come together. Oh, I like that. I know. I was like, love that because I always get so stressed when I go to a bookstore and I'm reading a series. I'm like, which book comes next? (laughs) You've got to put the number. I don't know. (laughs) And then you see how many there are in the series. You're like, what have I done? Literally. (laughs) Okay, so now we are going to pass over to our multi-talented coordinator, Axel Nathaniel Rose, who earlier in the day sat down with senior lecturer Stephanie Bishop to talk all things Mythos. Take it away, Axel. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us, Stephanie Bishop. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure. Um, So I'd like to begin with the question we ask everyone, which is what are you reading at the moment? What am I reading? I'm having a really, really exciting reading year. Um, The last year or so I was finishing a book, so I I kind of didn't read anything unless it was absolutely essential to the thing I was working on. So now I have this, I have a series of insane reading piles that are kind of scattered throughout the house, depending on what I'm working on. So I have, you know, things that I'm reading for work or for teaching, things that I'm reading for a book, things that I'm reading that would put me to sleep, things that I'm reading that will wake me up. I must have about five different reading piles and I kind of graze my way through them. So the one next to me at the moment has, I'll have to, I'll hold it up for you and then we can just see the titles and there's almost too many. So what have I got? The Mirror the mirror and the Palette, Jennifer Higgy um, on women's self-portraits. I've got, there's so many amazing books that have come out this year. Gwendolyn Riley, My Phantoms. I love her work. I've got Jenny Erpenbeck, not a novel, and Boya, The Undying, Annie No, The Years, and Catherine Angel, Tomorrow's Sex Will Be Good Again. So really, really, they're really exciting. Um, So this is my reading year. And that's just one pile. That's one pile, yeah. They're almost a weightlifting exercise. It, it is kind of. I figured to get through my piles by the end of the year, I'll have to probably read at least three books a week, which is quite a fun prospect, really. Yes, that is, well, a PhD-like <laughs> level of reading. <laughs> well, if I'm not writing a book, you know, it's kind of all preparatory. Yes, of course. May I ask what your... You have a new book coming out this year, I believe. Is that right? I do. Oh, so no, not this year. My wishful thinking. I finished it this year. It's not actually coming out till 2023, which seems a a small lifetime away um, and is a little surreal because it's all kind of all the production lines of things are underway. um, But no, it's not coming out till 2023. Um, Partly it's because it's an international publication. There is, um, you know, simultaneous publications planned. 
Um, so it's partly for that reason. And I think there's the hope that by then I'll, we'll be able to travel, all that stuff. But um, I don't really know what to say about the book yet because I haven't had to say anything much. Um, so this is the first time I've said kind of anything about it, I suppose, really. And I don't know how to talk about it yet without completely plot spoiling it. And I suppose if I were to try and give a brief summary without giving anything away, um, it's narrated by, and this may be giving something away, it's narrated by a woman writer whose name is Lucy, Lucy Blackwood. And she is married to a much older man who is a film maker and professor. He was once her teacher. She, Lucy, has won a very prestigious literary prize, which is not named, and has to travel to New York to receive the prize. She tries to link this trip into a kind of anniversary cruise with her husband, um, and he dies en route. So the novel is narrated by Lucy, and after his death, um, things kind of open up and we, we understand what may or may not, well, we do ultimately understand what has happened. Um, I suppose it's a book that is about, the only way I can describe it at, at this point is that it's a book about the power of art and the art of power and the way in which we are all unreliable narrators of our own lives. Yes. yes. What a beautiful sentiment. <laughs> um, the character Lucy Blackwood, is this the same Lucy Blackwood from your um, second yep. novel, The Other Side of the World? She was the child in that novel and she is the narrator of this one. So it is a standalone book and this has been kind of interesting. I don't quite know how this will play out in terms of how um, it is pitched or marketed depending on the audience. I thought of it at first as a sequel. It's not really a sequel, it's something else and I don't know what you call it um, because you can read it as a standalone book and I can't really explain why because that would give the story away. Um, but yes, it is narrated by the child from the other side of the world. And uh, will we see Henry and Charlotte, Lucy's parents again? Yep. That's very exciting for me. I just uh, <laughs> finished rereading The Other Side of the World for the first time since I first read yeah. the book. And I, I'd forgotten how just beautiful being inside the characters' heads was as an experience. Thank you. They, are both such attentive characters to to the world around them and give so much um beauty i, I think yes you. do you have a title for the new book yet yeah at the moment it's called outro like as in the opposite of an intro i don't know if that will stay the title there's some discussion around possible alternatives we don't have any alternatives at the moment so if we can't find any it may stay as outro um, which is a title I was talking to my UK publisher last night. It's a title that makes sense by the end of the book, but you don't necessarily know at the beginning why it's called that. Um, so we'll see what happens. It's a catchy title. <laughs> it's a strong placeholder. <laughs> Just launching into uh, some questions from Unsweetened's bias point of view, we are very interested in looking at how literature influences identity for individuals and communities and nations. And those are themes that I think are fairly, fairly central to at least two of your books. Are there any works that have been particularly influential for you as a writer or as a reader or as a teacher? Yeah, I mean, there've been so many, it's now hard to keep track of them. And I suppose, I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting question because in thinking about it 
it makes me realize that I don't really any longer anyway um, distinguish between those different things that I do writing or reading or teaching there there is a kind of just a segue between them all one activity informs the other I couldn't teach if I wasn't writing I couldn't write if I wasn't reading it's reading that makes me want to write and so on and so forth um, but if I go back to the kind of beginning of things in terms of the books that really started started me uh, well well, inspired me and made me want to kind of do those things and, and write books and, and teach and, and talk about all that stuff. Um, it would have to be going all the way back to high school um, and reading Virginia Woolf and T.S. Eliot. And that felt, Woolf in particular, just felt like a, it was an extraordinary discovery. You know that feeling you have when you're, you're younger, feeling as though no one else has ever read this book before, that this book was just meant for you. Um, they wrote it with, with your entire being in mind. And that was the feeling that I had when I first read Wolf. It was just a complete revelation. So I went from kind of Wolf, you know, kind of as a 15-year-old through to, and, and Elliot at the same time, um, but Wolf in particular. I went from that through to, to kind of Jeanette Winterson and then Marguerite Duras. And that was sort of all in that early pre-20s kind of period of thinking, what am I going to do with my life? And those loves have really stayed with me. I've never, it's never diminished my passion for those books. I suppose then other things started to feed into the mix um, once I was studying and, and trying to write myself. Um, and in particular, the things that really changed my, my take on the world and, and made me, I suppose, think about my own place in the world was reading philosophy. And I came to that through literature. I had some extraordinary teachers who asked us essentially to read poetry and to read fiction through the lens of philosophical thinking. And that was, again, just, just a kind of revelation for me. It showed me a different way of seeing. It showed me a different way of experiencing the world. Um, and it was the, the kind of fiction and the poetry in combination with the philosophy that really, um, I suppose, set a fire for me, yeah. So that was kind of Heidegger and Merleau-Ponty, um, Simone de Beauvoir, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. That kind of phenomenological thing. Yes. yes. One of the um, uh, common definitions of literary criticism is the philosophy of literature. And mm -hmm. while I know that's very contested, particularly by um, more traditional philosophers, I do think it's a good way of looking at, at literary studies because it it is about enriching literature and creative writing with, yes, non-fiction and with abstraction. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, all art, I think all the art that really moves you, moves you because it is embodying a different way of seeing the world and embodying a different way of being in the world, which is inherently philosophical. If you can find a way to kind of think about what that experience is. And sometimes you need the language of philosophy to help you access that experience. Sometimes the way you think about that experience, you know, you, you can have your own language for it. But art changes the way you inhabit the world, I, I suppose. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. but <laughs> And it leads very neatly into my next question, thinking of place. You had a transnational education in literary studies because you began at UTS, is that right? Yes, and then you went on to do your PhD at Cambridge. In your experience, is there a difference in how each country approaches creative writing and or literary studies? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, 
the way our the Australian model of teaching creative writing is very similar to the UK model and in many ways has kind of absorbed or um, adopted the UK model. Um, the only difference being that we don't tend to offer an MFA. Um, so, but the way in which creative writing and um, the way in which we think about the, the teaching of creative writing happens here, I think is very proximate to how it happens in the UK. Having said that, I didn't do creative writing. I mean, I, I, I did creative writing as part of my BA and then I didn't do it afterwards at all. I didn't do it for honours. I didn't do it for my PhD. And it's not taught, certainly wasn't when I was there. It's not taught as part of the curriculum in any way at Cambridge. Um, certainly very much alive in extracurricular kind of life and collegial discussion and so on, but it's not actually something that is part of your BA. So in that sense, it's dissimilar to how it happens here. Um, I mean, my my sense of how it informed my education in terms of moving between those different spaces, um, I'd kind of given up. When I went to Cambridge, I'd given up on doing creative writing at, at any kind of upper level for a whole lot of very complicated reasons. Um, I was trying to write a novel and, and just couldn't. Things had happened in my life that were very disruptive and, and I felt very stuck. And so I decided I would become an academic, only to find that when I was doing my PhD, I felt like something in me was just no longer alive if I wasn't writing. And I started to treat the PhD really as a kind of apprenticeship in style and an apprenticeship in a way of thinking about literature that meant something to me in a creative capacity. Um, and very deliberately, you know, with the help of my supervisors, tried to think about how do you read literature in a way that is creatively generative? What does it mean for how you would experience literature to then be able to, you know, I don't know, transpose that, think about that, interrogate that in terms of in terms of creative work. Um, but there is a dialogue between critical thinking and creative practice. And I suppose that was what my PhD, it, so for me anyway, not on the page, but for me, that's what it became, you know, that's what it was about. Yeah. How wonderful. And you graduated with a PhD in poetry and poetics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I was looking at American literature. Um, and it's funny, you know, I haven't really read poetry seriously since then, and probably for a decade after my PhD, I just couldn't read a poem. Um, and and <laughs> I think it was possibly a case of just complete overkill. Um, and at one point I was going to change subjects, you know, at that second year heebie-jeebie stage, um, change topics, and my supervisor said, no, really, just don't do it. Um, and I didn't, but I often wondered whether I should have and that I was going to go and work on fiction and not poetry. And I, now I'm really glad that I didn't because I think, imagine if I'd done an overkill job on fiction and I'd never been able to read a novel again. So so maybe it was for my own good. Um, who knows how these things work out and why they happen as they do. But um, yes, it was in poetry and poetics. You do seem to have, um, well, my experience of, of your prose is that it is a very poetically rich form of writing and particularly with assonance and alliteration and pacing, it's it has always felt like prose poetry almost to me. Thank so you. while I'm sure there's a great deal of poetry that would have been lovely to read in, in the time after your PhD, I think you've you've continued <laughs> you've continued using poetry. Thank you. I mean, I still, you know, those ways of thinking about literature are the same, no matter what genre you're, you're working in, I think, in terms of, you know, trying to understand those poetic principles that are, like, yeah. 
but but there was certainly a kind of overkill factor that happened in that period of time which i i don't think is that uncommon people just don't talk about it very much yes many people i think it was you who told me this quite a few <laughs> years ago now you said that there's nothing like a phd to make you hate a topic you loved yeah yeah i mean it doesn't always work that way i know plenty of people for whom you know they've continued to have a very rich relationship with the material that they worked on you know in that graduate period yeah and you know there are other factors that play into my situation um at the time which is that i had a i had a baby at the well during my phd so there was a very radical disjuncture or, or kind of you know a, a very dramatic change in just my way of life and, and how i saw the world in that period so i don't know whether that complete change in kind of academic direction as such also was kind of part of that that life change at that time um yeah you know Speaking of children and well-being in the UK, your second book, The Other Side of the World, which came out in 2015, follows a family's migration from England to Australia in the 1960s under the £10 POM program. Um, and there's also a particularly beautiful section of the book set in India. So what, what led you to such a transnational story? Did it come from doing a PhD in, in England and beginning in Australia or...? I mean, there were a few things that that made me decide to write that book and to write it in the way that I did. Um, and it did, I mean, yes, being in the UK did trigger it or galvanise the idea, I suppose, um, in that it made me think again about my own family's experience in a way that I, I hadn't when I was in Australia, um, in that my mother moved... My mother moved to Australia when she was a child, nine years old, from the UK. But her father, my grandfather, uh, was born in India um, pre-partition. Um, and he grew up in India and was all his childhood memories are of India. And he was sent to England just before the war. And he and his two brothers, he didn't see his mother for, what, more than 10 years. Um, but he never thought of himself as Indian. Um, he thought of himself as British. Um, and I always found that just extraordinary. To what degree was that part of just the culture in which he grew up and a sense of normalising that identity that to everyone else looked false? Um, or not to everyone else, but, you know, he, didn't seem authentic in in some contexts. Um, I and just he identified as as British despite his early years in India. Yeah, mm. and and obviously didn't look British. He looked Indian, um, and I found this really striking. Um, and it, at the same time, alongside that narrative, so he moved to England, um, then. Uh, married my grandmother and decided to move the family to Australia, um, much at my grandmother's um, horror and, and a kind of continuing protest till, till, the, till she died. You know, I mean, she never wanted to be here. She never thought of it as home. And I'm not sure that my grandfather ever had a strong and innate sense of where home was for him. It was something he sought out deliberately and tried to create for himself. Um, and I found that in my own transitions of trying to figure out where I felt that I belonged and the place that I would think of as home, I found his own diasporic experience 
just deeply compelling um, and something I wanted to think about. Um, so it partly was my own sense of moving, you know, from one place to another that made me want to investigate that. Um, but it was very much an attempt to, to kind of think through that family history in a fictional way and understand, try and understand um, the complexity of, of his identity. That's fascinating. And if the other side of the world has a shared protagonist role, Charlotte and and Henry, who, am I right in thinking that vaguely modelled on your grandparents? Yes. yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Up to a certain point. I mean, as characters, yes and no, their experiences, certainly Henry's experiences, are very closely modelled on my grandfather's. And I took oral histories and so on and, and did a lot of research and, and um, you know, travelled to, to the hill stations in India where he had been a child and things like that. So that's all very closely modelled on on him. The character of Charlotte is, again, it draws on my grandmother's experience in terms of what she had told me about her sense of dislocation and homelessness and longing and all of that. Um, but her experiences are perhaps not so similar to the real experiences of my grandmother's, Charlotte's and, and my grandmother's, um, in, in terms of how they're presented in the novel. But um, both my grandparents were the real people behind those characters, yes. Yeah. There's uh, not a, a stark difference, but certainly a difference for me reading um, Charlotte and Henry just in terms of how they negotiate the space that they're in. And there is such a sense with Henry that he's observant and he looks for beauty and he looks for nature around him, but he never quite uh, synchronizes that with, with himself. Whereas for Charlotte, it's like she connects so deeply um, to the British landscape and while um, you know she does see some beauty in Australia it's like it's it's not hers yeah yeah that their, their whole experiences of, of migration are so, so distinct yes I think that's a, to, that you're you're right it's a really lovely way of putting it um yeah and I mean I saw that play out in in my grandparents lives it really interested me um and I started to empathize with that once I started to move between countries. Um, I think in my family, my grandmother's sense of not feeling at home here and not feeling grateful in the way she was expected to feel, you know, that was kind of dismissed. Mm. It wasn't taken seriously. And then when I started to move around, I, I really felt for that sense that, that her longing for her real sense of home was never validated. It was never recognized as being a real feeling. Instead, she was meant to feel that she was fortunate to come here and she didn't want to. And I really felt for her um, as I grew older. Yeah. Whereas I think for my grandfather, there was, and, and this, is, this is to um, read between the lines very much so, but for me, there was a sense that he was always looking for something. He looked closely because he was looking for something. Mm. Um, and I'm always curious as to how those early experiences of landscape that we all have, the places we love as children, shape what we go looking for in the world, the places we want to find when we grow up. And Charlotte has that so cleanly in, in England. She's she's nostalgic for this one set place which she she 
visualizes and she paints and she remembers the smell but then then for Henry it's sort of like his nostalgia is ungrounded um quite literally yes yeah you're quite right yeah it's a kind of um uh, yeah a a loose and floating nostalgia for something he can't place yeah and he, he bonds so beautifully with his children he's he's so tender with the the two little girls and um I, I'm very curious to read your <laughs> book with grown-up Lucy because I've always wondered like how do these children feel um uh what do they consider their homeland to be if they have one yes I can't I shouldn't answer those questions now but all will be revealed in good time <laughs> <laughs> I have two years of waiting oh, sorry. Uh, no I will the anticipation will build beautifully I'm sure <laughs> Yeah, something that's so so prominent in the other side of the world is um, uh, descriptions of landscape and and the really visceral sense of being fully sensorily in a place. Mm. How, how do you go about writing that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't really anticipate that. It's not something that I seek out in any conscious way, but I think it's probably fair to say when I reflect upon it, that for me, the starting point of all writing, the thing that triggers me to put something down is the fact that I have a visceral response to it. Mm. To me, it's kind of an error of thinking to consider writing as something that's cerebral. For me, it's always visceral. Um, it's, It's translating a response that you are having to the world. Whether you're translating that in a fictional framework or not is irrelevant. And I suppose, you know, I mean, in terms of me trying to to understand my own kind of train of thought and, and, and history, that the, the PhD that I worked on was very much about a visceral response to poetry. How does the body experience sound and rhythm? That I'm interested in that in a critical capacity, but, but all writing for me starts with that response to the world. And when the writing is working, for me, it's because it is making manifest that response to the world. Um, so I suppose I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, it's an intuitive process, you, but you know it's working when I read back over a sentence and think, yes, that's the feeling. Mm. It's one of those rare, beautiful moments in literature of being fully transported and uh, the character's visceral experiences, that uh, the idea of translation of the visceral to, to the reader is um, quite an extraordinary thing, I, th- I feel. Thank um, you. And to me, that seems the pleasure of reading, um, you know, is to feel to feel that, you know, that, that kind of very intense, a sense of being transported into, into a different set of sensations. Mm. Um, and yeah. that's very, very prevalent in, in Wolf. I, I Absolutely, yeah. She was an absolute master of the body. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, you feel it, you know, you feel it in a work when there is that sense of, of kind of a real sensory aliveness, um, and, and which is basically an energy to me. I mean, something has an energy or it doesn't have an energy, and that might be a rhythmical energy or a kind of sensory detail energy or whatever it is, but you want to feel it in your body, to me, as a reader, anyway. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Your, um, so Charlotte, as a protagonist, um, is is a painter, and she after her two children are born she has some dissonance with with her process as a painter 
And um, in your third book, um, Man Out of Time, which came out in 2018, the protagonist, well, protagonist is a loose term, uh, Stella is, is a writer. And you, I'm not you, very inventive, am I? These characters are always writers. Well, yeah. I think that, um, you know, very different parts of the art world, but um, mm. yeah, certainly both artist characters. Mm. I, as a writer, always find it difficult not to have artist characters just because it's, I don't know, I, I suppose a way of engaging with the world that I, ca I can't quite dislocate from mm. from my writing process. Mm. Maybe that is uninventive of me, but... Um, maybe it's just the most interesting thing to think about. Yeah, the relationship between between art and, and yeah. human life is yeah. perpetually enchanting. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I got off track there, but... <laughs> So Stella, the young author, we follow her from when she's uh, eight or nine, I think, through to adulthood. And she's, I assume from the perspective of hers that we get, that she's quite a gifted author. But there's this absolutely heartbreaking line that's repeated through the book, um, said to her by her father, Leon. He says, you know, I am at the core of everything you will ever write because of all the pain I've caused you. And that was just an excruciating line um, for me, like there's the sense of him dislocating her from her writing, taking away the autonomy over her own stories. But was that a prevalent idea or line for you in the writing process? Yeah, I mean, it's probably fair to say that the book started with that line and that in the initial working through of the drafting of that book, the question for me was how I could get that line to repeat itself through the narrative as the kind of theme, almost the theme of the book um, or the theme of Stella's experience. We never really know if she herself is the one writing that book and trying to kind of reclaim her narrative. Yeah, I mean, the, the, in terms of where that line came from and its significance, it's hard to overstate its significance. And I find it, you know, just extraordinary and quite humbling and, and moving that, that you pick that line out. I don't think anyone else has, but you're completely right. Like if you pull that thread, everything else unravels and I kind of, you know, um, yeah, go to jelly. Um, <laughs> so that line... I get strangely inarticulate when I try and talk about this book. And I was saying to someone the other night that it's funny, you know, when a book first comes out, there is the feeling that, certainly for me, and I, I expect that this is not uncommon, there is the feeling that whatever you say might be used against you. Mm, yes. um, that whatever you say at the time of a book's release will, to some degree, determine its reception, which I find quite interesting, but very troubling. So I, I, you know, this was a difficult book to talk about and a difficult book to write because um, so much of it is biographical. Um, my father had bipolar, um, and this was in the, in the 80s and 90s when, you know, the understanding of mental illness was, you know, well, bad to say the least. The medication was ineffective. The diagnosis changed based on the medication. Um, to say the situation was dysfunctional would be a wild understatement. Um, so in terms of where the book came from and that line, it was for me very much an attempt to kind of think back through that experience in a fictional capacity and in some ways try and make sense of things that as a child were normalised and yet made no sense. That 
discoordination of being told something was normal and that yet you know it is not and that it's not right and that it doesn't fit and no one helps you make sense of that. You know, you, you kind of can't process that. Well, I certainly couldn't process that until a very, very long time after the events when I kind of lost track of what had happened and what hadn't happened and what I had invented and what someone had told me and what narrative was true. And, and it was almost as though the passing of time released me from having to um, be beholden to the truth because I didn't know what the truth was anymore. And there were so many differing versions in my family of what had and had not happened in the course of those years of his life. He died when I was 21, so that's quite some time ago now. Um, you know, there, there was no real version. And so I wanted to use that line as a kind of refrain to, to circle around possible versions of things that may or may not have happened and to, to kind of think about them in a fictional way. In terms of what the line actually meant for me and what it means for Stella, I mean, I suppose it was a way of thinking about the manner in which, particularly in the case of kind of mental illness and those kinds of instabilities within family life, the way in which a family member can aggrandize their role in someone else's experience and can impose a narrative on their experience, you know, that is that is kind of a real mindfuck. And they might not know it because they're not stable. Um, and the child can't know that that's not the case because they're a child. And the only way I could unpack that line for Stella was to trace it through her history as she became older and could see that line from a different perspective, from a perspective of history and age, um, and try and kind of interrogate and transform that line into something that she didn't have to live underneath of or beneath. I don't know if that's grammatically correct in any way, but that she could sort of, I really don't like the, the kind of common notion that one has to own one's story. That's not quite what Stella was trying to do in the book um, or what I was trying to do by writing it. Um, but there is a sense in which she has to track that line through her own history in order to understand its complexity. Mm. There's such a malleability to a, a child's psyche. I, I can't remember who said it, but some author at some point said the greatest responsibility of a parent is telling a child the first chapters of their life story. And I'm sure many a debate could, could go into how a parent can do that. It's <laughs> pretty amazing when you think of it like that. Um, yeah, and the level of narrative cohesion that is required to do that in a sound way. I mean, I think that in itself, even in a, even in a stable family, is probably, probably quite rare. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And, and for Stella, who does have so many different inputs into her life and... Uh, Leon is so important to her and despite all of the ambiguity loves him deeply that idea of you know that her stories belong to him in, mm. in some way it felt like him stunting her ability mm. to move on in creating her own story I'm not sure if I've expressed no, that absolutely I think you're absolutely right and that's certainly how Stella experiences that in the book completely and it's funny, you know, I mean, I think it's really difficult, and I say this as a parent, you know, to get to that point where you have to recognise that your child will have a different version of their lives, a different narrative sense of their lives than the one you have of their lives, and to let that be, um, and to not try and impose your version of their life 
on them and to let them have their their story in the way and to interpret their story in the way they want to you know that's actually that's a really curious and sometimes challenging thing as a parent so and I think also as a parent you say things that that you don't think will have the weight that they end up having for the child Mm -hmm. Um, Leon says this to Stella at some point in a kind of throwaway sense and Stella takes it on board almost as the motto of her life Leon may not have meant her to do that yeah of course I can't imagine any circumstance where, you know, perhaps apart from giving religious doctrine, where a, where a parent would actually be saying something like that yeah. and expect it to shape the child's life. No, absolutely. Um, it's, it's just day to day, but for a child in those early years, it's mm-hmm. everything is formative. Yes, yeah. And sometimes yeah. unexpected things are formative. Yeah. Yeah, and, and a parent can miss those things, you know. You can you cannot see the the mountain that the child has created out of something you've said. Yeah. Not yeah. To, that's not to dismiss Leon's wrongs in any way, but to try and contextualize that line in, in terms of how, how Stella treats it and thinks about it as she gets older. Of course. It you know, Leon is a very problematic character and I I at multiple points went, oh dear, what's going on? <laughs> I, want, I want to stop this situation happening for Stella, but it's um he was such a an extraordinary character to be in the head of. And um in I think the second half of the book you you shift perspective. Most of the book is in third person, but um very abruptly it it just transitions into second person in Leon's psyche. And mm-hmm. It was so um, surreal as, as a reader, this this sense of just shifting into the second person, you are experiencing this. And while, you know, everything had been very visceral, very acute, it, it felt so different to be told. Mm. You. Um, was that a really a- active decision for you? Or? Yeah. That was, I mean, I knew that I'd been experimenting with different ways of trying to convey his level of dissociation at key points of of, um, his breakdowns. You know, at one point the book was entirely Leon and that didn't work. Um, And at another point it was entirely Stella and that didn't work either. Um, So it was a very slow process of trying to figure out how to kind of maximize that experience of breakdown without it taking up a huge amount of space in the novel and second person became for me the way of trying to do that so that was quite a deliberate choice but it happened quite my understanding of that happened quite slowly yeah second person is such a a rare experience i i think in um most day-to-day reading i think the most second person I've been exposed to has been in narratology classes and looking specifically for pieces that break convention. Mm. And this was just integrated so, so smoothly. It was um, quite an experience. <laughs> Sorry, that's a very vague comment. but No, no, no. Thank you. Thank you. But yes, I mean, I think you have to use second person for a reason. And I suppose that's, you don't see it. If, you, if it's overused, it, it loses its power. It loses its effect. It's probably a you know, a good reason that we don't see it too often. Um, mm. Yeah, there has to be a justification for it, I think. I'm sure in terms of um, philosophy of literature, second person has a great body of philosophical thought thought to it. It's, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. it's um, again, drawing um, some links, we've got the 
beautiful painter of Charlotte and the beautiful author of Stella. And both of them have experiences of their art becoming dislocated from, from, from their life. First, Charlotte, motherhood and, and marriage really impinge just on the time she has to paint, let alone all of the, the energy that, mm. that's needed. Mm. And Stella, of course, her cycle, um, her stories cycle around Leon. And th- there's a line where she she's reflecting on every story you write will be about me. And she's just sort of indignant, I, I think. Was that a theme that you were sort of conscious of with the other side of the world that was then so central to Man Out of Time? Or It's a really good question. I certainly didn't make the connection between the two books that that question or experience of dislocation was common. But once you put that to me as a question, it, I suppose it makes me realise the degree to which when I'm writing the thing that I'm most interested in, doing is exploring things that seem uncomfortable or that seem not to fit that seem to be dislocated or out of place or I can't find them yeah there's I think it's fair to say that that question of dislocation is probably always um at the core of anything that I I write if I understood how everything fitted together and consciousness was seamless and everybody knew their place in the world There'd be no reason to write anything for me. Mm. Um, yeah. There are so many maxims about how uh, narratives need need conflict or, or need some form of drama. And while there is substantial conflict in, in both books, that sense of dislocation is a, um, it's far more subtle than there's lots of screaming and the uh, death and, and whatever counts as drama, but, but that, underlying sense of dislocation is what drives the way that the characters interact with each other, I think. I think that's a wonderful way of putting it. I think you're absolutely right, that I suppose investigating that experience of dislocation does absolutely kind of draw attention to psychic life and to character life and to internal experience. And any conflict that then arises comes about as a result of that internal discomfort. Um, that sense of internal dislocation um, as much as anything, I think. That the external manifestation of conflict, you know, that's a kind of a, a result or a side effect or symptom of something else going on internally in regards to that, exactly that feeling of being dislocated, uncomfortable, in a state of disease. Mm. Yeah. And it feels a very natural way when, when conflict comes about having already experienced a character's dislocation, it, it doesn't lessen the extremity of extreme situations, but it's it's a more cohesive way of seeing how how tragedy and how huge life events do just slot in yeah. to, to the psyche. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems important to me that there's always that that kind of relationship between that, that internal life and whatever happens um, in in the external space of character action, yeah. Mm. I guess that's the question we're always kind of asking ourselves too, is, well, why did they do it? I'm much more interested in why someone did something than what happened, or if something happened, I don't want to know what happened next. I want to know why they did the first thing, you know. Um, So it's, um, they're connected. The character's psyche will always be a web. A single event can unfold an entire life story sometimes. Absolutely, yeah. Well, um, we are very nearly out of time, and our theme at, at Unsweetened this year is mythos, and uh, we are hoping it will be interpreted in a 
great many ways, not all of them literal, but on the literal definition of mythos. Are there any myths or folk stories that have been really influential in your life? It's been a lot um, at different stages. I would probably, if I had to choose two, I would have to say Ariadne's Thread and Orpheus and Eurydice. Mm. I'm not familiar with Ariadne's Thread. This is um, the labyrinth. Um, Ariadne, uh, there is the Minotaur in the labyrinth. Mm. And Theseus goes into the labyrinth to kill the Minotaur. Ariadne gives him a ball of red thread and a sword so that he can kill the Minotaur and find his way out. He can use the thread to trace his way through the labyrinth. Um, There are different versions of the story in terms of what happens to her next, um, whether she suicides um, or not and and so on. But the thing that I always found really beautiful was perhaps just the image of the labyrinth and the idea of the Minotaur at the heart of it and then this red thread that, that could be followed out um, and I suppose my, my interest in Orpheus and Eurydice was similar, was that idea of the underground and whether mm. one would or would not ever be free from that. And if one chose to stay in the underground, why was that? Stephanie Bishop, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear from you and learn from you. It was lovely to talk with you, Axel. Thank you so much. Always really great to have members of the English and creative writing faculty involved in the publications. So thank you both to Axel and Stephanie for that interview. Rather than writing prompts and workshopping, what else have you been involved with recently, Eleanor? So last term, I was involved with um, running the workshop for Stress Less Week, which was really fun and really interesting. So I got to kind of deep dive into the world of journaling. And I, we had a group come, which we had a, a lot of people come, which I uh, was really happy about. Um, it's like a bigger turnout than we expected. And um, everyone had a lot of great ideas, fostered discussion about journaling and how it helps them with um, stressing less and their mental health and how it helps them uh, cope with uni and um, life events and things like that. Yeah, awesome. Do you journal yourself? Yes, I do. I do. I especially started during COVID. Like I've always mm. journaled on and off during my life, but um, during COVID it was consistent. <laughs> and I find it really, really helpful to, as I said to the group during um, Stress Last Week on the event day, when you sit down and you just start writing, even if you're just writing something that you have no idea <laughs> where the words are coming from, you're just moving your pen on the paper or typing it out on your computer eventually it starts to make sense and you actually start to bring up things that you may have kept hidden Um, Mm. and it really does help to clarify everything in your brain um, and to kind of organize yourself because a lot of times we do hold a lot in especially if we have a lot on our plate with uni work friends family partners all of that um, we do tend to hold a lot in. So getting it out on the page can really help lift the weight. And, yeah, I think it's just a really great way of you know, helping you stress less and helping your mental health. So I definitely recommend it to anyone. It's really helped me in the past personally. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I'm also a big fan of journaling. 
And last year especially, I definitely got into it more. I was doing a lot more creative writing last year than I'd done in a long time. So even though it was a definitely a difficult time, part of me kind of does miss the lockdown, which I think forced me to really, you know, write. Uh, not just creatively, but about my thoughts and feelings in a way that I've definitely dropped off, unfortunately. But I also really enjoyed collaging, which is something that I've always done. I was really inspired as a teenager by Rookie Magazine. Did you ever read that one? Yeah. Yeah. And they always had these beautiful collages that I always was trying to emulate in my journal. So I like putting quotes and pictures and then a little thing that I've written as well. And uh, yeah, it just makes you feel like you're settling your mind in a way. Mm. But it also gives you something to look back on, which I think is really invaluable. Yeah, I, def- oh, I definitely agree. That's another thing that we kind of discussed was that with consistent journaling, or even semi-consistent journaling, if you don't have the time to do it every day, when you start doing it and then like months in the future, you look back on what you first started writing and you can notice and see the difference in your mental health and things that have changed or certain perceptions that you used to have of yourself or others um, or your situation has changed dramatically Mm. and it can kind of help you sort yourself out in a way so yeah I definitely agree with being able to look back on the past and I do love the idea of putting a creative element into it with like collaging and Mm. like scrapbooking there's so many different ways to journal which I think is great because not everyone likes to do things the same way so there are a lot of options out there for people to not only write but put an artistic element into it as well yeah absolutely there's so much inspiration out there as well like Pinterest, Instagram, YouTube. Mm. I'm a big sucker for watching other people journal on YouTube. I find it so relaxing, (laughs) especially the time-lapse ones. I'm like, oh, so satisfying. (laughs) I love that. I didn't know that was a thing. I have to look it up. Definitely a thing. Um, Yeah, something that I used to do as well was I used to write letters to my future self, which I know is a bit cheesy, but um, I guess it's a similar form of journaling. Um, Mm. But you, yeah, like the things that I wrote to myself as a 15-year-old, whew. <laughs> really, it's always fun reading back on your 15-year-old self. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, that's a, I think that's also a really great, like a way of journaling is writing letters to your future self. I think it's important because mm. uh, it's just kind of, you see where you're at and where you, where your past self wanted you to be. Yeah. So you can, you can kind of see how you've changed in that respect or maybe what stayed the same and what you've achieved. I think the image that my 15-year-old self had of being 21 is very insightful. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So there was, of course, another event which Unsweetened was involved in recently, which was the live reading of the infamous I'm not really sure if you could even call it a fan fiction at this point. It's just become something of its own entirely. It is none other than my immortal. So, <laughs> Eleanor, would you like to tell us how that went down? Look, it was a wild ride from start to finish. I will tell you that. It was a lot of fun. Um, especially, I think, um, Nick, who uh, played Dumbledore. 
yeah. that was um, priceless. It was fantastic. Um, there was always a slight pause before he yelled out <laughs> his lines as Dumbledore, which was always a lot of fun. And just kind of seeing everyone really get into it and um, just be a bit silly with it and have fun. Rosie, um, uh, our other editor, as Draco, fantastic. Oh, my gosh. Yes, absolutely fantastic. So if you haven't heard of My Immortal, it is I guess it it is an entity of its own, but mm. it's um it's classified as the um, most well known and infamous fan fiction ever written, um, and it created quite a stir and buzz when um, in like the early two thousands. Uh, I had never heard of it before the event, and oh really? Uh, yeah, so I had never um, never heard of it, and I read it. I fun fun fact, I read it while I was at work. <laughs> um <laughs> it was a very quiet day and I was like yeah I'll just read it in between customers no big deal and um one of my coworkers had to keep walking past the counter and she saw my facial expressions and she was like what are you reading oh my god <laughs> it was it was a range of emotions that I was feeling yeah. that day when I first read it um it's very entertaining a lot of fun you do have to take some of the the things in there with a grain of salt because uh, sometimes it can get a bit problematic, um, um, especially by today's standards, uh, but it is a lot of fun. And it was a yeah. lot of fun doing a live reading of it. I I definitely remember reading it, um, I think, when I was, like, oh, like 13, 14. Um, but by that time, it had already been, like, thoroughly memefied. Mm. Um, <laughs> so I always uh, saw lots of, references to ebony and I was like what does this mean and I, I, I vividly remember reading it for the first time very um formative experience yeah yeah definitely <laughs> that's why I thought like what would I have thought reading this as a teenager compared to reading it as a 25 year old and like yeah. I don't <laughs> it's a very different experience but it was it was still a lot of fun uh, all the references to Good Charlotte, My Chemical Romance. Yeah. It did it did bring back some memories for me. Mm. So, Eleanor, you've been super busy these couple of weeks, I'm just realising, because you've also prepared a segment for us. So I will let you take over from there and tell us all about that. If you're a fan of horror and gothic fiction like I am, I'm sure you've heard of the event that took place in a summer home in Geneva, which housed Lord Byron, his young physician John Polidori, Percy Bysshe Shelley, his wife Mary Shelley, and her cousin Claire Claremont. Boredom struck on a dark and stormy night. They made a bet to see who could write the scariest story. This night gave birth to John Polidori's The Vampire, that's vampire with a Y, and none other than Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. This is where most horror fans first hear of horror in literature. This event occurred in 1816, well before the publication of Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1897, another well-known gothic horror novel. In actuality, the birth of gothic fiction began in 1764 with the novel The Castle of Ontrado by Horace Walpole. It is a story about a curse that leads a man to make terrible decisions to avoid its cruel end. It includes spooky skeletons, ghastly ghosts and untimely deaths, all set in a large gothic castle. Horace Walpole didn't just write gothic horror, he also revived gothic architecture, before it was cool. If you've never heard of Strawberry Hill House, I would suggest you Google it immediately. 
It is an architectural masterpiece. Anyway, back to the point. Walpole was the first to use the term Gothic in the title of his story, bringing in an entirely new genre. The Gothic horror genre mainly focuses on some form of battle between good and evil. The evil is most likely supernatural, although sometimes man-made, and usually a metaphor for man's vices. It also contains themes of life, death, morality, and often discusses religion and philosophy. The backdrop of the Gothic novel is often what distinguishes it as such. Ruined Gothic castles, bleak landscapes, and desolate surroundings. If Walpole was the creator of the Gothic literature genre, Mary Shelley and Bram Stoker are the ones that made it cool. Two years after the famous Geneva sleepover, Mary Shelley published Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, anonymously. The story of a mad scientist obsessed with the power to resurrect the dead and his rejected creature has stayed relevant throughout the years and is one of the most popular novels in the early gothic horror genre. The inspiration for Frankenstein came from a nightmare Mary Shelley had while sleeping through the storms at Geneva. She saw a gruesome figure stitching together body parts of a man and awoke with the idea that would make her one of the most well-known gothic writers of her time. She was further inspired by the current works of science concentrated on animated life and electricity. Through this, a monster was born. When looking through the lens of gothic fiction, Frankenstein doesn't always align with the common tropes of the genre. Examining the main theme of gothic fiction, good versus evil, who in Frankenstein is the villain? Victor is consumed by his passions and need for scientific success, which ultimately leads him to create an abomination who he abandons and betrays. The creature was not born a villain, but transformed into one over time through neglect and the hatred of man. Both characters share and interchange the role of evil. When looking into the morality of the characters, we question Victor's ethics the most. He is the source of all the misfortune throughout the novel. Even when it is at the hands of this creature, he is the cause of its rage. The only other novel just as popular as Mary Shelley's Tale of Woe is the story of an unsuspecting couple and a powerful vampire. Bram Stoker received his inspiration from multiple sources, the main one being the medieval historical figure Vlad the Impaler. Much of the violence found in Gothic literature was taken from accounts of medieval tales. Stoker used one of the most obvious elements of Gothic fiction, the bleak and inescapable setting. Between foggy London and the ruinous Transylvanian castle, the protagonists, Mina and Jonathan, have nowhere to go and no way to reach each other. They are trapped and under the watchful eye of the bloodthirsty beast, Dracula. There are no shades of grey when it comes to who the villain is in this tale. The use of setting leaves the reader with a sense of dread and hopelessness for the young couple, but not without a hint of excitement for the macabre and taboo. The idea of the vampire has continued to thrill readers through the elements of sex, immortality and violence, the basic instincts of all humans. Through the years, many other authors would go on to create timeless gothic stories and poetry. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe, Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, and countless poems and stories by Edgar Allan Poe, just to name a few. The popularity of gothic novels in the 1800s also affected the highly sought-after penny dreadfuls of the time. Penny Dreadfuls were serialised stories filled with blood, violence and villains. They could be bought for a penny by the lower classes and often contained images to entice readers. The popularity showed the people's desire for horror as entertainment. The 18th century brought us some of the best gothic literature that has been adapted time and time again into comics, films, TV series and even books. These stories remained relevant but dipped in popularity briefly, which were then revived again around the 1930s when they were adapted into classic horror films. Think Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. These stories have been adapted over again, creating worlds of their own. For example, the vampire craze of the 1990s and early 2000s. We all remember Twilight. Some of us are trying to forget. 
Gothic literature has remained popular and the stories have become classics in the process. While the classics remain, Gothic literature gave birth to many contemporary genres. Thrillers, modern horror, southern Gothic and crime all have elements of its mother, Gothic literature. The most closely related genre would be horror, which has its own subgenres, some being psychological horror, post-apocalyptic horror, paranormal, slasher and supernatural, and on and on it goes. Gothic literature was named so after its use of Gothic buildings, but modern horror is veered away from the restrictions of Gothic architecture. If the writer is able to create an atmosphere and setting of mystery and dread, then it can be classified as horror, much like the house in Shirley Jackson's 1959 Haunting of Hill House. When thinking of contemporary horror fiction, the name that often comes to mind is Stephen King, who has written 62 novels, not including short stories and collections, that have terrified generations. Taking a close look at King's most popular novel, It, many of the themes of this terrifying tale fall under the same as Gothic literature. The fight of good versus evil, a supernatural opposition, a bleak setting that the protagonist can't escape, as well as philosophical questions that relate to innocence. The difference between classic Gothic fiction and its child modern horror is the time in which they were written. Modern horror has none of the societal restraints of the 19th century and can therefore alter its setting, the level of intensity to its terror, and allow us a more in-depth view of the characters. Which relates to a quote by Stephen King himself. Monsters are real, and ghosts are real too. They live inside us, and sometimes they win. The same elements can be found in some of his other works, such as The Shining, The Stand, Pet Cemetery, and Salem's Lot, a common collection of themes that classify a story as horror. So why did Gothic literature become so popular? How did it stay relevant and transform its broader genres, including modern horror? Psychologically, the main emotion these genres elicit is fear, which leads to physiological symptoms such as increased heart rate, queasiness, stomach upsets, sweating, and if it's really scary, screaming. Do we enjoy being scared? John Moriel argues that there is enjoyment in negative emotions, which are often brought on by reading or viewing horror. This fear is linked to an adrenaline rush, which is usually associated with danger. No one is actually in danger of reading or watching a horror film, but our physiological response to the fear evoked by the genre tricks our body into thinking we are in danger. So it can be argued that horror is enjoyable because it is a safe way to feel fear. We receive the adrenaline rush without any of the usual effects of it. It is also a safe space in which people can further explore and even understand their fears. The main one being the universal fear of death, but that might be a little bit too heavy to delve into right now. Another theory of the enjoyment of horror is that it takes its reader outside of the mundane world. Vampires, creatures, ghosts and ghouls all live safely on the page and in our imaginations. This adds to the excitement that horror and gothic literature can create. Taking it back to the 19th century, when looking at the quality of life, death was around every door. The mortality rate was high and life expectancy was low. Death was no stranger to the Victorians, which can attest to their fascination with penny dreadfuls and the rise of gothic literature. When looking at the genre for entertainment value, not much was available at the time to ensnare the people's attention. Literature and cheap penny dreadfuls were perfect for the job. With all that said and done, I'd like to finish off with a quote from Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House. No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. I hope you've all enjoyed my say on gothic literature and horror. Stay spooky. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that, Eleanor. So before we finish up, I'd just also like to remind everyone to keep their eyes peeled for more of our collectible playing cards, which will be out in the wild of UNSW this trimester as well. There are some really beautiful designs of figures from myths and legends of all varieties, so make sure you keep an eye out for those. 
Furthermore, submissions for the publication are open. So if you're thinking of submitting, I highly recommend doing so now before the craziness of the trimester hits. You can access the submission through the UNSW Literary Journal website through ARC. And there's a form there. And you can also stay updated on our Facebook group. And now to finish us off, we have our incredible coordinator, Axel, back again to deliver us the retelling of the Greek myth of Ariadne's thread, chosen by our guest, Stephanie Bishop. The king of Crete, Minos, had a son whose name was Androgios. He was a fine child, loved well by his father, and when he was assassinated by the neighbouring kingdom of Athens, Minos waged war against the nation which took his child. King Aegeus of Athens fell to Minos, and to save his city from Minos's wrath, he agreed that every seven years he would send seven young women and seven young men to Crete, never to be seen again. Word broke through the city's walls through the years. The young people were being sacrificed to the Minotaur. The Minotaur was the child of Pasiphae, wife of Minos, but it was not Minos's child. Pasiphae had been spelled by the god Poseidon to fall in love with a sacred bull. To that bull she bore a child, half-human and half-beast, the Minotaur. While she nurtured it, it grew ferocious. It accepted no food, only eating human flesh, taking the fingers of all those who nursed it. Pasiphae called on Daedalus, master craftsman, to build a labyrinth for her monstrous child. Outside the city of Crete, the Minotaur lived its life in an impenetrable maze. It, nor any who entered it, could leave. It was there that Minos was leaving the Athenian youths to wander, lost, until the Minotaur took them. Minos was afraid that Daedalus would share the secrets of the maze, so locked him and his young son Icarus in a tower of Daedalus's own creation. The fourteen young people, every seven years taken to be killed, was the legacy of Androgios. Minos's son. But King Aegeus too had a son, whose name was Theseus. He came into adulthood just as the third cycle of seven did. He offered to take the place of one of the seven young men and to kill the Minotaur, to end the grief of his people. He promised his father he would return. He was walked with the other sacrifices before the city of Crete. He was confident and proud and he was beautiful. The princess Ariadne, child of Minos and Pasiphae, saw Theseus, and with that look loved him. She knew, though he did not, that it was impossible to escape the labyrinth. She came to him the night before he was to be sacrificed, and gave him three things. A mighty sword made by Daedalus, stolen from her father's armoury a ball of thread that he would unwind as he walked the labyrinth to mark his pathway out, and a kiss. She took from him a promise that he would take her with him as his wife if he lived and fled back to Athens. Ariadne waited beyond the labyrinth. Theseus emerged with the head of the Minotaur and the thirteen young Athenians behind him. He took Ariadne and his people before King Minos heard of his triumph against the Minotaur. By boat, they fled from Crete.
The young group moored on the island of Naxos. Naxos was of the Dia, the holy isles of the god Dionysus. They slept on the sand near the water. There Theseus left Ariadne sleeping, unwedded and unloved. It was there Dionysus found her, abandoned, stateless and terrified, and still in love with Theseus. Dionysus saw her, and with that look, loved her. He took her in his arms and took her as his wife. She was faithful to Dionysus, and with time she loved him. Her wedding diadem shone so brightly it was set in the heavens as the constellation Corona Borealis. When the Mycenaean hero Perseus waged war against Dionysus, Ariadne was killed, turned to stone by the head of Medusa. Dionysus went to Hades and brought Ariadne's spirit from the underworld with him to Mount Olympus. There she was deified as goddess of mazes and labyrinths and thread. Thank you to everyone for listening. We hope you have a great week and keep tuned for more exciting news about the publication. Goodbye. Bye.